Was Russia the aggressor or was it arguably acting in self-defense? We rejoin with our special legal expert guest, Dan Kovalik, on bringing light into darkness. And so, look, I think it's probably a close call, but I think on a realistic level, it seems to me that Russia, again, has a case that, yes, it was acting in self-defense and it was acting really to protect its physical integrity and its existence as a nation. And again, I think something that the U.S. wants to destroy. And I believe that. And again, you now are hearing things being said about, you heard Lloyd Austin, the U.S. Secretary of Defense, saying that we want to use the war to weaken Russia. I mean, we're being very open about it. And I think the goal is to break Russia. And they saw that and they they waited for eight years, you know, while this war was raging on their border as hundreds of thousands of people fled into Russia mm-hmm. from Ukraine because of that war. By now, they're combined with the people who left during the, you know, the eight years war. And then after this invasion, there's now a million Ukrainians living in Russia. So what I can definitely say is the U.S., if they were faced with a similar situation. If Russia had helped put a government in Mexico City that was hostile to the United States, hostile to Americans living in Mexico and were attacking those Americans, causing many to flee into the U.S., the U.S. would not put up with that for one second. And very few countries would. Right. I mean, honestly, again, looking at this realistically, Russia has actually shown a great amount of patience and their patience ran out. I think emotionally speaking too, the way we're played as Americans to emotionally get so attached to the TV images that do more than present news. You know, war is terrible and God help anyone in a war zone. That's not the point. But I think what you're suggesting too, or what I would suggest is that when you look at the United States, quote unquote, justification for going into Iraq, originally it was a preemptive type of deal, right? ostensibly, or you look at the Libyan thing, the R2P thing, or, or all these other interventions that you you alluded to, they all pale incredibly in comparison to the real security existential threats that you've enumerated here on the show today that Russia felt. So I think it's really incumbent on the American public to look at that. And what I hear you saying is that, yeah, you're not endorsing the invasion or whatever. You're acknowledging that Russia had some real concerns and that you have enumerated them in your work and articles. And it's not to say that two wrongs equal a right, but at some point there is a justification for self-defense. And certainly in this Ukrainian-Russian conflict, the weight of support for that type of interpretation is much, much greater than anything that we've done in our interventions that went relatively unexamined by the mainstream press. Is that is that a fair? Yeah, I mean, we have to view things from the perspective even of our adversaries. And by the way, I've never seen Russia as a necessary adversary. I think that it's a country that, frankly, we could have worked with. We did work with after 9-11 to fight the war on terror. Putin was very helpful with that. I think the Russians have been shocked. Well, I, I, I don't think. I know they have been shocked. And if you hear statements by Putin and Lavrov and other officials The Russians thought after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of communism that the bar to them becoming part of the West was lifted, right? That they'd be welcomed back with open arms, maybe even be brought into the EU. And that never happened. They were never welcomed. And now, right after the, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine, I mean, the anti-Russian sentiment that just exploded, which clearly had been under the surface. And I'm not talking anti-Putin or anti-Russian government. 
sentiment, but anti-Russian, you know, racist hatred for the Russians was expressed in so many ways. Xenophobic. Yeah. Yeah. And the Russians saw this, by the way. You know, now Putin has about 80 percent support in Russia for this war. And it's because Russians, many of whom, particularly in places like Moscow, you know, the big cities who were under the illusion that, that Russia had been welcomed back to the West and that they were considered part of the uh, community of nations like everyone else and were respected, realized when all these musicians and sporting figures and teams were just eliminated from competition just because they were Russian, they realized, oh, God, they do hate us. Mm-hmm. And they realized that that hatred was going to translate into violence against them. And again, I think we have to be honest about that. And, and it, it had translated into violence against the Russian speaking people in Ukraine. And it was coming for them. And I know that. And I think anyone looking mm-hmm. at the situation honestly knows that. And if you do look at it that way, what was Russia supposed to do in that situation? Let me just ask you a couple more clarification points because so excited to have you on the show. Dan Kovalik, international legal expert and guest tonight. Two things. I, I just want to confirm that you said 80% support for Putin, not 8%. Is that right? 80. Yeah. 80. I think it's actually like 8 yeah. 1. 81 yeah. was the last thing I saw. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. So that's what, and that's post invasion. And, and I think it's because of this stuff that we are talking about tonight uh, that you are illuminating and you illuminate in your writings. The Russians are well aware of all that. The American public is not. So our tendency is to say, well, sure, it's a totalitarian state. That's why all the information is controlled there. That's why 80% support him or whatever. When in fact, I would argue that the totalitarian information state is really here, or at least is here in the form of all this information that's never made available. The thing I wanted to ask you to speak to was you mentioned about the Russian speaking people in the Donbass. Also, there was a process a few years ago where many of them became Russian citizens. There was a, there was a kind of a, a fast track opportunity allowance by the Russian government to do that. Can you explain that process? Yes. Yes. Well, I don't know the entire process, but yes, the Russian government made it easier for people in particularly in the Donbass of Ukraine to become dual citizens and to become citizens of Russia. And by 2021, about 500,000 or about half a million Ukrainians availed themselves of that and were citizens. And there was a prediction that by the end of 2021, that would become a million people. I don't know if it reached those levels, but you're talking at least well over half a million people were Russian citizens, which again makes it from the Russian point of view, all the more pressing for them to defend them against violence by the government in Kiev, which was happening and again was threatening to even accelerate. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, listen, I wanted to thank you for your visit here on Bringing Light into Darkness, Dan. I wanted to remind people that Daniel Kovlik, he also teaches international human rights at the University of the Pittsburgh School of Law and is author of a, of a book, No More War, How the West Violates International Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention to Advance Economic and Strategic Interests. Yeah, just in, in your closing remarks, what do you think are the most important misperceptions that the majority U.S. public have that have been generated by the media and our government talking points? You know, in your article, you mentioned how this is really a proxy war between the United States and Russia, but it's totally presented as an invasion of the sovereignty of the Ukraine by an aggressor, Russia. Can you, in your final comments, sum up 
where you think the most realistic interpretation of what's going on lies? Yeah, I mean, first of all, we've been made to believe that Putin and the Russian government are somehow these imperialist forces that want to take over Europe, if, if not the world. And there's absolutely no evidence of that. In fact, this is a, a, an amazing case of projection by the U.S., because it's actually the U.S. that thinks it owns the world, right, that it can invade the Middle East at any time it wants, or even Europe, right? After the Russian invasion in February, Joe Biden said this is the first armed co- conflict in, in Europe since World War II. Well, that's not true. NATO bombed Serbia in Europe for 79 days, 1999. You know, the U.S. feels it can go halfway around the world to protect its interests. Russia doesn't view the world that way, right? They never have. To the extent you could claim they have an empire, it's always been at the periphery of their borders, right? And I think that's something to keep in mind. And and to keep in mind, again, that this chaos that was happening on their borders was happening for eight years before they invaded. I don't think they wanted this war. I think they desperately did not want this war. And did it ultimately because they felt they had to. And you know, frankly, even if you look what they're doing within Ukraine, you know, we were told, oh, they want to overthrow the Kiev government. They want to take over all of Ukraine. By now, it's pretty clear that's not true. Right. They did encircle Kiev initially. That appears to have been a strategic fake by them. Right. To keep Ukrainian armed forces in Kiev while they focused on what they wanted to, the Donbass. And by now, they've taken the troops away from Kiev, and all their troops are now focused on the Donbass. I think that is where they're focused on. So this is not the act of someone who wants to, again, somehow recreate the Warsaw Pact or take over Europe. There's no evidence of this. I think at the end of the day, we have to be resigned to the fact, at least I'd like to be resigned to the fact, that Russia is going to exist that it has a right to exist and we have to deal with them and we have to find a way to get past the situation, to find a peaceful solution and to work with Russia, trade with Russia, be able to travel to Russia. You know, those are important things. So actually, right before the invasion, I happened to notice that uh, Moscow was ranked the most livable city in the world. You know, it's real. Really? It's a tragedy. The whole thing's a tragedy. Yeah. yeah, no, I think your analysis is is very sobering and very needed. And we're really blessed to have you active at the academic and investigative journalist pool. Very good. Well, Dan, in just concluding our visit today, again, I want to remind listeners that we've had the esteemed international human rights and legal expert, Dan Kovlik of the University of Pittsburgh School of Law with us today. If people are interested in accessing some of your articles as well as any other written materials that substantiate your positions that you've shared here today, how would you advise people to access your work? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Daniel M. Kovalik, K-O-V-A-L-I-K. Right now, I write a lot for RT. I write a number of books. I've written seven books, including one on Russia, The Plot to Scapegoat Russia. You can find those at skyhorsepublishing.com. Hey, well, listen, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. And we would love to have you back as things unfold over the next few weeks. And hopefully, as you've indicated, this conflict, the military side of it comes to an end very quickly. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for your time. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much. Okay. Talk to you soon. Welcome to the closing segment of Bringing Light into Darkness for May 9th, 2022. Okay, we are back. We are with Mike Whitney, the investigative journalist that's been updating us on the unfolding situations and issues connected to the Russian-Ukraine-NATO-US conflict. Hey, Mike, welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. Hi, Pedro. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, well, Aaron Maté just last month had a very important discussion and interview with Swiss intelligence officer and NATO advisor Jak Baud, B-A-U-D is his name, that we had referred to in previous broadcasts. And he's a former Swiss intelligence officer, a senior UN official and NATO advisor. So he's very well vetted in these issues. And one of the things that he talked about, we were just talking with Daniel Kovalik about this a little bit, was that there was a 30-time increase in the uh, missile launchings that were coming from the Ukraine into the Donbass in the days preceding the actual Russian invasion. More than that, there was, in addition to this massive increase of violations, there was also apparently documentation of a planned Ukrainian attack that was to occur in the first week or so of March by the Ukrainians as well. So it seems like there's an argument not getting any focus, which is in addition to having real tangible national security documentable concerns that Russia was very much provoked in a sense into this uh, into this conflict as well. But can you just brief us real quickly on first on that issue and we'll move on to a couple of other issues while we have you here on the short side of 10, 15 minutes. Sure. Uh, The Russian MOD, the Minister of Defense, did release the documentation proving that there was a plan and that plan was going to happen apparently two weeks after the actual Russian invasion. And uh, what I mean is that the 50,000 or more combat troops on the Ukrainian side who were amassed just outside the ethnic Russian area of the Donbass were going to invade that area. And so what happened is on the 16th, 17th and 18th of February, which is just a week before the Russian invasion, they began this relentless artillery bombardment of the softening up of the front lines in the Donbass, which normally precedes a major invasion. So the question is, if the entire blame that is being you know, put on Russia's shoulders for the invasion was actually a way of preempting the Ukrainian invasion, which would have involved a mass ethnic cleansing operation in the Donbass, then aren't they justified under Article 51 of the UN basic uh, constitution? So, and uh, they are. So there was some legitimacy to their invasion because they were just preempting the Ukrainian invasion and stopping what amounted to the eight year long bombardment of that area and the killing of 14,000 ethnic Russians in that area. So they were just preempting basically the final extension of the civil war that's gone on for the last better part of the decade. Yeah. And as we've already mentioned, that was one major factor, but there were others, right? There was the neo-Nazi nature of this nationalist ultra-right wing infiltration of the whole Ukrainian army and leading the... Uh... Yeah, that was, that was the proximate cause. That was the direct cause of the invasion in the time table that we uh, are talking about, which is February 24th. Right. But there was also things that uh, preceded this, including Zelensky's uh, open admission that he wanted to join NATO, that his uh, many uh, times uh, having joint drills with uh, NATO operations and uh, military in carrying out those joint drills on Ukrainian soil, which was, of course, to intimidate Russia. The claim after Munich by Zelensky that he wanted to develop a nuclear arsenal, which was, again, a red flag for Russia. Mm -hmm. And the fourth thing, which we don't talk about much, is the 30 or so bioweapons labs. Well, we'll call them biological labs, but there were definitely proven uh, elements within them that suggest that they were bioweapons labs that the United States was covertly operating within uh, Ukraine proper. 
I think that speaks specifically to the fact that there are multiple national security interests that Russia was concerned about. Let, let me move on because you, you did a really good job on the biolabs last week. So if people want to get caught up on that, we can make that available to them as well. I wanted to move on since we only have you for a short period of time. There was also the former UN weapons inspector, Scott Ritter, has been pretty right on on some of the military aspects and analysis of, of the ongoing conflict and such. Can, can you update us on your interpretation of his most recent comments about how Washington was just flooding Ukraine with weapons that they really do not know how to use properly and are just going to get completely annihilated as a result type of thing, I think was his words. But anything that you found really pertinent that that Scott Ritter has recently spoken? Yeah, I'll just go over two things. And uh, the first thing is that Ritter goes through chapter and verse in his various videos, which can be found on the Rumble station. And I suggest that that anyone who is listening to this now uh, listen to in in detail to at least a few of these so that you get the picture that these are intelligent, well-informed professionals who understand what's going on on the ground. And what's going on the ground is the Ukrainian army is losing and losing decisively. And this runs contrary to everything you're reading in the media. But again, he can give you chapter and verse. And just one striking thing, we haven't seen the Ukrainian army mount one counteroffensive, one successful counteroffensive during the whole 70-day operation so far. That tells you something. That tells you that that uh, Russia has absolute air superiority, that they control everything moving on the ground, that they have destroyed the main transit lines and the railroad hubs, et cetera, et cetera. And that now they're in this long process, one should not expect an immediate result, but they've surrounded 50,000 combat troops in the Donbass region, and they are slowly grinding them down. So they minimize the number of Russian casualties. This is probably going to take between three weeks to six weeks. It's a long process, but they're not going to go charging in on their tanks and get taken down by javelins or what other weapon systems these people might have. But they are, for all practical purposes, surrounded in the Donbass area. The main body of the Ukrainian army is right now getting grounded down, and they'll either have the option of surrendering or being killed in place. So that's what's happening on the ground, and it's in stark contrast to what you're hearing in the media. But just remember, with Russiagate, with COVID, with you know just everything we've heard of late, the, the media shapes its narrative according to political interests and aspirations rather than the reality of what's actually happening on the ground. Yeah. And the second thing mm-hmm. is people are very concerned about all these, uh, the shipment after shipment of heavy weaponry, lethal weaponry that's going into Ukraine from the NATO nations and from primarily the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is coming in through Poland. An awful lot of it is being blown up as soon as it enters Ukraine. It's a legitimate target as far as the Russians are concerned. And of course it is because those are weapons designed to kill Russians, Russian soldiers. But a lot of this weaponry is either outdated, obsolete, or requires a lot of expertise. And these people have not been trained on it. Some of these people are just citizens like off off the street corner, just being sent to the front lines after a week's training. And they're not prepared to use these high-tech artillery pieces or these uh, javelins or whatever. So they've had very little impact on the war. What has had impact is the original strategy that the uh, Russians employed, which was breaking themselves down into small columns and companies. But now they've completely returned to the conventional sort of battle plan, and which means that this is going to go on for a bit longer, but it's going to, the, the outcome is really not in doubt. Very, very good. And, and we just got another three minutes or so. So let me get you to turn to our last issue for a quick update too, which has to do with this 
most recent Gonzalo Lira video talking about the economic sanction response that Russia is, has now formally began to consider and may implement? Well, this is huge. I mean, this is the biggest event in the war so far, and it has not been gotten much coverage in the Western media at all, although there have been people taking emergency plans already. And uh, what it involves is Putin issued an edict uh, essentially saying that in 10 days' time, the Duma will either pass or uh, not pass this edict of his forbidding any natural resources to be sold to unfriendly countries. Now that includes natural gas, coal, and oil. And of course, Europe is incredibly dependent on Russian oil. I was looking at the figures and uh, it's just astronomical. You know, something like 35% of all Europe's oil is coming from Russia. 55% of Germany's uh, natural gas comes from Russia. So you're gonna see, and keep in mind, there is a direct connection between the growth of a country, the country's GDP, the standard of living, and the amount of energy consumption that country has. And so you can see that if they suffer these huge catastrophic cuts off you know, of, of gas or oil, you're going to see a, a plummeting standard of living almost immediately. So sometime within the next year, you're also going to see with the absence of Russian ingredients for the fertilizers and stuff, you're going to see real dramatic food shortages in places that have never experienced food shortages. And that's across Europe. So Europe is being asked to willingly go along with a battle plan that the people have not had any referendum on and have had no input into at all. And that could have been resolved quite peacefully for this uh, globalist project to continue to use Ukraine, not as an independent country, but as a battlefield and as a projection point for U.S. power. I, th I think that's a great way to sum it up exactly that. In fact, even though we're sending all these arms there, a lot of them are getting blown up before they even get to the front. But at the end of the day, the people making those arms, the defense industry makes a freaking killing. And the people that are getting killed are Ukrainians, not the U.S. So Biden certainly uh, has no no worries there, so to speak. So if I could just put in a couple of things into context from the show tonight. It appears that the purpose of this conflict is not to protect Ukrainians, but to draw Russia into a military conflict that will weaken its overall economy and prospects in the world today. A goal that the United States has as a geopolitical priority at the cost of the Ukrainians who put their sons and daughters in harm's way every day to a greatly overwhelming force in the form of the Russian military. Moreover, while day-to-day -day reports plastered all over the news by liberal sites like NPR as well give the impression from the U.S. government, the false impression, that Ukraine is winning this war because they want it continued. It appears abundantly clear that in the following weeks, we will see Ukraine never had a chance and they will suffer enormous losses in the Donbass. Yet once again, the American public is misled because no alternative narrative is allowed to come close to the ears, the minds, and the hearts of the good Americans that are misserved by our mainstream media. And then lastly, Mike, just to reiterate what you've said, this document that was authored by President Putin on May 3rd has a 10-day window in which it'll likely be passed by the Duma. And when, when they mention unfriendly nations that they will be sanctioning and discontinuing trade with. What he's referring to are those nations that put in undue sanctions and has been sanctioning Russia to death even well before the 
Ukrainian invasion. You know, this is really something. Lira, in his video, indicates that some $285 billion has l largely been stolen by the sanctions that the EU and the United States has put on Russia, taking their monies, their commodity producing revenues that they're owed. And it sounds like Russia's done. And while so often there are frivolous sanctions that the West puts on other countries, Russia's been enduring it for too long. And the cost of the Russian actions in retaliation, as you've indicated, are going to be very damaging to the European citizenry, not the economic elite that push these wars. And then lastly, when the pain from all these Russian sanctions comes to the EU and the global economy. Of course, our mainstream media will demonize Putin and the Russians for unprovoked economic harm without providing any of the context that we've shared here tonight and have been sharing since 2014 coup. Yeah, and the people who will be suffering the costs of this war will be Europeans. And not only that, but they have had no, there's been no democratic process to express their opinion on whether they should go forward with it or not. How can something that big happen and it doesn't even hit headline news? I mean, it's just a right. Well, I, I mean, had... Germany, Germany's energy security is is gone. It, they have no energy security now. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. You know, no no backup generators. Max here. Very good, very good. Well, we're we're out of time, and want to remind folks that Mike Whitney, his poignant thoughts and reflections on the show have really added an ongoing context and a current one to each of the last four shows. And Mike, really appreciate that. People can access Mike's work on UNS Review. He writes on a host of issues, many of them connected to geopolitical issues. Thank you, Mike Whitney. Thanks for having me, Pedro. We'll see you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with Co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out, as we do every week, with Land of Naivety.